0: in your Bibles, if you have one, to Isaiah chapter 11. We'll actually look at three uh, short passages in Isaiah this morning for our Old Testament lesson as they all bear down uh, upon our sermon text from the Gospel of Matthew. I do this in part to show that Isaiah has a coherent narrative in terms of his prophecies that he gives under inspiration of the Spirit Isaiah, writing in the 8th century BC, speaks of the coming servant of the Lord, uh, the one who, empowered by the Spirit, will bring righteousness and salvation to his people. This morning we'll consider how Matthew incorporates all these passages as he highlights Christ as the suffering servant of the Lord God Almighty. So, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 5. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. If you recall from previous weeks, the Lord had declared that Israel was that tree, that vine that had to be cut down to the root. And yet from that root comes a branch, an Israel of one. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, speaking of this branch, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And he will decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he kill the wicked." Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now, turn me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 42, as we'll look at the first four verses in Isaiah 42. Again, here speaking of this servant of the Lord, this same servant who is born of the virgin in Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, the same servant who inherits the heavenly kingdom, this kingdom of whose increase of government there shall be no end, in Isaiah 9. It is this same servant of which Isaiah speaks. Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud, he will not lift up his voice, nor will he make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench, he will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the land and the coastlands wait for his law. Now finally, Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 4. Here the servant of the Lord himself speaks through the mouth of Isaiah. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. Now if you'll turn with me to our New Testament reading this morning, Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17, passage that so many of us are familiar with, but we'll see here Matthew echoes an awful lot of Scripture in a short space to help us understand who Christ is and what He has come to do. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John in order to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, yet you come to me. And yet Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And so John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest upon him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is God's holy word. Let's go before him and pray that he would open our eyes to understand uh, the person and work of our Savior. Our gracious God and Father, there are many things that you have recorded to us concerning the salvation that comes to us through Christ. We pray uh, that as we give particular attention to these uh, few verses this morning, that you would open up our eyes uh, to know more fully the grace of God that is found in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I think one of my least favorite things in the world, I I say this slightly as hyperbole, but not much hyperbole, is that in the middle of the night when I get up uh, to go get a snack, I end up stubbing my toe uh, on uh, the couch or a table or anything like that. I think everybody's gone through a particular situation like that. It's 2 a.m., you're hungry, maybe it's just me. You wake up, you're on your way to the kitchen, and what do you know? Your toe has found the couch long before your eyes have. It's not as though somebody has snuck into your house. Robbers have come in and have placed an extra couch that was not there. It's not as though that you have an enemy that has broken into your home and rearranged your furniture uh, just so you can stub your toe. It's something that's always been present, always been there, but uh, because of the darkness, you still fail to see it no matter how many times you bump against it over and over and over again. What is needed, of course, uh, is for somebody to turn on the lights. Well, I think what we see in our passage this morning, the lights are turned on. What do I mean by that? Here, Christ's baptism illuminates for us something that has been present the entire time. That here is our one God who subsists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. You know, with the rest of the church throughout the world here on Sundays, we confess that the Son of God was made man for us and for our salvation. But here, in this very act of salvation, even particularly this morning, we're given a peek behind the curtain, as it were, as the method of God's salvation reveals to us the God of our salvation. So I'd like us to consider three particular things this morning. First, we'll consider the baptism of the Son in verses 13 to 15. Verse 16, we'll consider the descent of the Spirit. And then in verse 17, the voice of the Father. The baptism of the Son, the descent of the Spirit, and the voice of the Father. Father, Son, and Spirit. To remind you where we were and left off from last week, our context has been uh, regarding the ministry of John the Baptist. Here is the promised forerunner to the Messiah, the one who would come and signal the beginning of that great and greater exodus that was to be inaugurated as the Lord returns to his people. That is the substance of Isaiah's message. It is the substance of what Malachi himself had foretold. That in the last days the Lord would send one in the spirit and power of Elijah who would make ready the path of the Lord as the Lord comes and returns to his people. John's ministry was preparatory. It was a message intended to rouse the nation from spiritual lethargy and apathy as they make way for the return of Israel's king. As we saw last week, John is considered to be the last of the Old Testament prophets. This is what Jesus himself will say of John. None greater among all the prophets than John. He is the last of his kind, as it were. And so, John's baptism, we should not see as some type of um, preacherly add on to the service to make people, uh, 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 to get people jazzed up about worship or something like that. John's baptism is a baptism under divine ordinance. The Lord had called John to initiate this particular baptism to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. It is a divine ordinance that signified the washing away of sin and the turning from sin, and the filth of sin, to newness of life. That's why John will call it a baptism unto repentance, a baptism with a view towards repentance. We saw the dangers last week of what took place when one would try to have baptism apart from repentance. The Pharisees themselves came uh, and tried to be baptized to join the rest of the crowd, and yet they wanted to be baptized uh, without any desire to repent. And yet this morning, Jesus comes to be baptized, and he has no need to repent. What a contrast John the Baptist last week calls out men who want to be baptized, and yet uh, they don't desire repentance. And now here comes one who wants to be baptized, and yet he has no need of it. John protests here. This says, what what are you doing? You're of greater rank. John immediately recognizes who this is. You are of greater rank than I, as we saw last week. I'm not not even worthy to be your slave. I'm not even one who's worthy to carry your sandals. And yet, you want to be baptized by me? No, no. Jesus, I think you have it the other way around. I need to be baptized by you. I mean, here's a prophet who's been filled with the Spirit since the womb, and yet he recognizes that here is one who has a greater fill of the Spirit. He has the Spirit without measure. John says, you're the one who needs to baptize me, not the other way around. I think John, uh, we kind of look and we laugh and go, all right, John, why are you protesting what Jesus has commanded you to do? But you kind of feel the pressure, don't you? It raises an important question. Why is it that Jesus needs to be baptized? If he is, in fact, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, why would he have to undergo a baptism of repentance? Jesus gives a critical statement that John seems to grasp right away, and this is why John is able to, to relent so quickly. Jesus says, we have to do this per minute now, because it is necessary for us to fulfill all righteousness. Of course, we are, at least myself, have been left scratching my head and asking, what, what does that even mean? What does Jesus mean when he says, that, uh, we have to fulfill all righteousness? What well, we see throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus will speak of righteousness in a number of ways. And in the context of this, he will begin to speak more openly of his mission and purpose as we make our way through Matthew's gospel. You think of Matthew chapter five, verse seventeen, where Jesus says, "I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets; rather, I have come to." fulfill it. Using that same language here, fulfilling all righteousness. Later at the Sermon on the Mount, he'll speak of fulfilling the law and the prophets. I think at the very least we can say this, when Jesus says he has come to fulfill all righteousness, he means he has come to do what God has commanded of him. You think of Psalm chapter 40, which Hebrews uh, the author of Hebrews will cite, saying that this is Christ Himself who has come, saying, "Behold, I come to delight to do Your will, O God. You have prepared for me a body that I might render unto You pleasing sacrifices." I need to kind of rehearse Israel's history, as God's righteous law has been communicated to His people, given to His people throughout all ages. It was first given to Adam in a garden. Adam, of course, broke the law. He did not fulfill all righteousness. He did not secure eternal life for the people of God. Israel, as they entered the land, they broke God's law repeatedly, even as God revealed to them on tablets of stone written in his own finger the very righteousness that God requires. In contrast to Adam, in contrast to Israel, both, by the way, who are called sons of God in the Old Testament. Here comes the true Son of God uh, to obey and actually fulfill all that God has required of him. In all of its fullness, God had commanded baptism to John the Baptist. It was a divine ordinance. So Jesus, having come to fulfill all of the law and the prophets, Comes to fulfill this particular divine ordinance as well. Christ keeps it. And yet, I think there is more to the story as well. You know, you think about what goes on here in the States every four years, we hold presidential elections. Whoever wins uh, the election poll will then have to take an oath for office where he vows not only to lead the American people, but also to represent the people on the geopolitical stage. Right When this elected individual takes his pledge, his oath of office, everything changes. He ceases to be a private individual, and now he becomes, using somewhat older term- terminology, he becomes a public man, a public official. Everything that he does is now put into the spotlight. Everything he does is as the leader of that elected body, and as the representative of that elected body. Well, here Jesus begins his public ministry. We can somewhat make a rough analogy here that his baptism is a baptism into this public office, not for a four-year presidential term, of course. Not elected by a people, but elected by the Father himself to be the representative head of his people. He takes the form of a public servant. Isn't that interesting? That's the language that we use even for elected officials today. They are public servants. They are ministers. And here, Christ takes on the role of this servant of the people as he chooses voluntarily to become obedient even to the point of death. As Paul will say in Philippians 2, death is on a cross he comes to fulfill all righteousness even as he bears the curse of sin due the people that he represents See, in Jesus' baptism, he undergoes this special relationship. This is an act of corporate solidarity with his church, where he is not only their king, not only their leader, but also their representative head. Everything that he does, he does as a representative of the people. Anything that he does on the public sphere is now imputed, as it were, reckoned uh, to those whom he represents now, I remember in 2016, I was living just outside of Chicago, I finally had the World Series for the first time in over a century. The Chicago Cubs had finally won the World Series. It was about one o'clock in the morning, game seven. Cubs win, uh, and all of a sudden, I hear in the streets fireworks, and people running up and down the street, shouting and screaming, we won, we won, we won, and I open and I peek out the window, I'm thinking, you did not win. How can you say you won? I'm surprised you could make it to first base without falling over and dying of a heart attack. This is, the, the, some, the person that you see in the street running is not somebody who looks like, uh, what we might say, an athletic individual. And yet, how is it that, that the common person, so many hundreds of people, so many thousands of people in Chicago, on, on that midweek night, one o'clock in the morning, could be screaming, we won, we won, we won, even though they had not stepped foot inside Wrigley Field. It's because the Cubs had acted as their representative, as it were, on the playing field. The victory of that team is now credited to the victory of the people who are associated with that team. Does that make sense? That's why people get so excited about going to a football game or a a baseball game. I remember when I was uh, in college in in Florida, there's this guy who sat in front of Uh, In front of me in church every Sunday morning, he's from Tennessee. He's from Knoxville. You can always tell whenever Tennessee lost a football game because that morning, Sunday morning, the day after that college game, he it would show on his face. He would have the look of defeat. Jesus undergoes an act of solidarity with his people. That's what this baptism signifies. He undergoes, as it were, an oath of office to engage in public life as the representative head of the people of God. Well, John relents, and he baptizes Jesus. Jesus comes up out of the water, and Matthew now directs our attention to a very strange phenomenon. You see this here in verse 16, where the heavens are rent open. And the Spirit descends in the form of a dove. Notice where he says that in behold. Again, that that word behold is kind of an old-fashioned, fogey term that simply means, hey, pay attention. Looky here. What's interesting, it doesn't simply say that the clouds are kind of parted. This is the heavens themselves are open. What does that even look like? It's a very strange phenomenon. What does it even mean? Again, I think we have to go back to the Old Testament to understand this imagery that is being evoked here. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, Moses himself, this is his final farewell sermon as Israel is about to enter the promised land. and Moses is about to die. And Moses, as the great prophet of Israel, tells the people, there is coming a day where in your sin and your treachery and rebellion, the Lord will have enough. And he will exile you from the land on account of your sin and the heavens will be closed and as brass. You will pray for forgiveness. It will not come. You will pray for deliverance. The Lord will not answer you on account of your rebelliousness and your iniquity. You fast forward several centuries later to the prophet Isaiah. Again, speaking of the work of the Messiah. Again, that that term Messiah, the old Hebrew word Messiah, the Greek word is, is Christ. Simply means the anointed one. Isaiah speaks of this suffering servant, this public man who is anointed by the Spirit as the representative of the people, who is anointed not with oil, as the old kings of Israel were, but he's anointed by the Spirit himself and empowered as the Messianic king to reverse this curse of the covenant that has fallen upon the nation. To deliver Israel from her sin and her exile by bearing the curse as Israel's representative champion. This is Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. Here the suffering of the servant, the suffering servant will be as a lamb led to the slaughter. He will be bruised and crushed for our iniquities and the chastisement that was due us for our sin will be reckoned to his account so that by his wounds we would be healed. The end of this lengthy portion of Isaiah. Isaiah, in speaking of the work of this suffering servant to come, prays to the Lord, he says, O Lord, return for the sake of your heritage Israel, recognizing that the curse of the covenant that Moses had prophesied has in fact fallen upon the people. The heavens have been shut as brass. And Isaiah prays, O Lord, please hear us. Please return to your People. The heavens have been shut. Israel has been exiled from the land and from her God. The curses of the covenant have fallen. Israel remains in her sins. And in Isaiah chapter 64, Isaiah says this, O Lord, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And here at the baptism, we see the heavens rent and the Spirit descends. The pathway between God and man, the corridor has been reopened through the work of the suffering servant of the Lord. Isaiah is praying that communion between God and man would be restored. And here as Jesus comes up from the water, the heavens are in fact opened and the Spirit descends. Even as Hebrews tells us, here is one who has opened up for us a new and living way to God, who by his voluntary work, he undergoes, again, as the representative of his people, the salvation needed to bring an end to man's alienation from God and to effect reconciliation between God and man. As Paul himself will say in 2 Corinthians 5, the message that we have been tasked and delegated to preach is a message of Reconciliation. The alienation between God and man has been brought to an end. The heavens are open, the Spirit descends, Christ himself has become our peace. And yet we see here that the Spirit descends in the form of a dove. We have to ask ourselves, now, why a dove? Again, we always have to be using the Old Testament as the spectacles, as the, as the grid, the lens, the decoder ring, as it were, to understand the imagery being evoked here. When was the last time that we see a dove descend and alight upon the waters? It's at the flood. You recall, again, Genesis chapter 6 to 9, on account of uh, the sin, not just of the people of God, but the sin of of the nations, of the whole world, God comes in a flood of judgment where he opens up the heavens and the waters of judgment fall and drown the people in an act of God's wrath. Second Peter says the waters of judgment fell to destroy the world that then was. Now here we find that the heavens are open once more. And instead of judgment falling, we see the spirit of peace descending and falling upon the Lord Jesus Christ. What does this signify? It signifies that the waters of judgment are dealt with Through this suffering servant. As Christ, as he goes through this baptism of judgment, later Christ will describe it as a baptism of fire. He undergoes the judgment as the representative of the people of God to bear the judgment and the curse of sin that is due us. Here is the obedient son where the disobedient sons of God of before have failed. Adam who's called the son of God in Genesis 5 and Luke 3:38 rebels against God he's exiled Israel who is called God's son in Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 as we saw just a few weeks ago national Israel rebels and they're kicked out of the land and here is God's everlasting son and he comes fully obedient to secure salvation as the representative of his people so that he might effect peace for us. As Paul himself writes, he himself is our peace. He has opened up this new and living way to God. He's leading us through, to use the language of Isaiah, this new and greater exodus that culminates in the forgiveness of sins, that delivers us not simply from the tyranny of another political tyrant, but from the tyranny of sin and slavery to sin itself. That's so why Paul himself will speak so evocatively in Romans chapter 6 that that is the very thing that our baptism with Christ signifies, a deliverance from sin's tyranny and the washing away of sin. Sin will not have dominion over you because Christ has bore the curse of the law. Now, and now, because of it, the old man, our old self, has been crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed. Well, if that's not enough, Matthew now directs our attention to even one more significant feature. So once again, now in verse 17, he says, again, behold, look, pay attention. Now a voice comes from the heavens. Last week we heard of the voice in the wilderness, John the Baptist. Now we hear of a second voice, a voice from heaven. Two witnesses authenticating the legitimacy of the Of who Christ is, a voice on earth and a voice from heaven, giving dual testimony as to who Christ is and what he has come to do. And the voice from heaven cries out, this is my beloved son. Again, going back to the Old Testament, last time we heard a voice boom from heaven was at Sinai in Exodus chapter 20. Where the Lord comes and he thunders. And he speaks from heaven. His voice is attended by thunder and flashes of lightning, the sound of a trumpet. As he thunders his divine displeasure at Israel's sin and idolatry and gross immorality. And the people respond saying, please stop. Make the voice stop. We need a mediator. Moses says, you have spoken rightly. And Moses becomes the mediator, the public servant to the people of God. Moses Faithful in all that he was. Hebrews 3 makes, will make this point, by the way. Moses is a servant, a public servant. Faithful in all those things. But here comes one who's greater than Moses, who's not simply a servant. He's, he's the son. I, I, there's something that's really striking going on here. So far, Matthew has been making all these allusions to the suffering servant passages of Isaiah. And yet, here comes one who is a servant, who takes on the form of a servant, but who is, in fact, more than a servant. It's categorically different. He himself is the beloved Son of God, the one in whom is found all the deepest delights of the treasures of his Father. What we find is not just another servant like the prophets. All throughout the Old Testament, the Lord will refer to his prophets as his servants. Behold my servants, the prophets, the Lord will say. But here he says, not simply behold my servant, but behold my son. The one in whom there is no sin. The one in whom I take great pleasure in. How can God ever delight in sin? The answer is he can't. And so here is one who is found with no sin. So he is uh, the, the source of the Father's rich delight. He is the apple of the Father's eye. And the Lord says, behold, here he is. The one who has now come to act as the faithful representative of my people. The first Adam failed in his task as representative of the human race. We see in Romans chapter 5. Now Christ comes as the last Adam to succeed where the first Adam had failed. Whereas all the other sons have disobeyed, here comes the everlasting Son, who, as Hebrews 1 says, is the very radiance of God's glory, who is the very imprint of God's character and nature. Christ who has come to be our champion, to bear our sin, and to represent us in the heavenly courts. Jesus is baptized with the Spirit as he's empowered to begin his messianic task as this servant of the Lord. Behold, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim Liberty to those who are in prison. Liberty from what? Liberty from sin. Because here is one who is able to forgive sin because he will come to bear the curse of sin. Here's the one who by his various acts, those miraculous deeds will demonstrate that the curse of sin is beginning to unravel as Isaiah himself prophesies in chapter 35 that this new and e- greater exodus is signaled by the lame leaping for joy, the blind seeing, the deaf hearing, the mute singing. And what is it is that Jesus does in his ministry over the next three years, he causes the blind to see, the mute to speak, the deaf to hear, and the lame to jump for joy. Here, this greater exodus is secured through one who is greater than Moses because he is not simply another servant. He is, in fact, the beloved Son of God. Christ comes as our representative. Theologians will speak of the active and passive obedience of Christ. It's not speaking of two distinct stages in Christ's ministry. It's speaking of two facets of the entire work of Christ's ministry. Christ passively bears the curse of the law. The curse that is due us for our sin, Christ bears it at the cross. He bears it in his humiliation and his shame because why? He has undergone this baptism in an act of solidarity as the representative head of the people. He has been elected. Not anybody can bear the sins of the people. It is one who is appointed unto this office. It is one who then, after being appointed to this office, is demonstrated to be sinless. Christ fulfills the obligations as our elected representative head as he bears the curse of the law. But it's not just the passive bearing of the curse. He also acts as the obedient son so that his obedience is now imputed and reckoned to our account. Paul himself writes in Romans chapter 5, the first Adam sinned. And that first transgression is reckoned to uh, the, the, the moral bank account of every human soul, where Adam's sin is now reckoned as ours. And he says, just as sin came into the world, reckoned to all mankind through the transgression of the first Adam, so now the last Adam has come, so that by his righteousness, by his obedience, we might be reckoned and credited as righteous." Where we are clothed with the very righteousness of Christ Himself, the active of obedience of Christ is just as important. This is what we call the passive obedience of Christ. J. Gresham Machen, uh, great Presbyterian of the early twentieth century, is the last recorded words of his as he dies in the middle of the Dakotas on January first, nineteen thirty-six, sends a telegram back east. So I'm, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. There is no hope. Without it. Here we see the obedience of the Son brought into view. And it'll come into greater view next week when we see that obedience put to the test as he undergoes temptation, severe temptation in the wilderness as the representative head of the people. But here we see or we hear the voice of the Father booming from heaven, speaking and giving the divine stamp of approval as to the character of the of who this public servant is. Paul himself writes in Galatians chapter 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Why? That we might receive the adoption as sons. He who is the Son of God by nature took to Himself our nature, so that we who were children of wrath might become sons of God by grace. He was the Son of God by nature, took our nature that we could become sons of God by grace. Here we see the means by which Paul can say we have been adopted into the beloved. Because Christ has come to receive us as his little brothers and sisters. And so he represents us before the Father. That's why Jesus, as he is about to ascend to heaven, he says, I ascend not only to my Father, but now I ascend to your Father as well. Here, the adoption. Our adoption as sons and daughters of the Most High are brought into view because of the obedience of the sinless Son of God. This is what we mean when we confess that the Son of God became man for us and for our salvation. We mean just that. But we need to recognize that Christ did not simply represent us at the cross. I think so many of us see everything leading up to the cross as something like filler space. That what really matters is the cross, and the cross is critical, it is central, but no less important than Jesus' own life uh, as a private person and as a public servant. The whole course of his life is one of representative obedience. As he becomes and as he chooses to voluntarily undergo this baptism as our represented official, our elected federal head. Elected not by us, but by, by the Father from eternity past to secure our redemption and to reconcile man to God. And yet in the very process, the very method of this salvation, we see the wisdom of God spelled out. That in the very act of saving us, God reveals who He is. You know, when I was a kid, I used to hear people try to describe the doctrine of the Trinity in something like this. Remember a guy at my church would, uh, growing up would say something like this, "Well, I'm a, I'm a father, but I'm also a husband, but I'm also a son, and this is something analogous uh, to the doctrine of the Trinity. No, it's not. That's actually really bad. God does not say, I'm a father one moment and then says, I'm a son the next. God does not, the father does not boom his voice from heaven and say, hey, look, I am myself pretending to be a son to myself. No, it is the voice of the father that booms from heaven and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. There is a distinction within the Godhead between father and son This is my beloved son. I'm his doting father. You know, the early church confronted such teachings as a little old church heresy known as modalism that, that, said, that, that tried to make sense of the, the doctrine of revelation concerning who God is. They say, well, God is kind of like a, uh, this is what modalists would say, God is something like an actor who has three different masks, three different persona. Or sometimes he reveals himself as father. Sometimes he reveals himself as son. Sometimes he puts on the mask and reveals himself as spirit. But, but here's the danger in adopting that that viewpoint. If, if God is just an actor behind a mask, then all we have is some, simply a divine performance, and we still don't know who the God is behind the mask. Does that make sense? That's why it's so dangerous. What we see in in the manifold counsel of God is that he has planned a method of salvation that not only saves us from our sin, but reveals who God is in the process, who he truly and personally is. And here he reveals himself as that one God who subsists in three persons. The Father who sends the Son. The Son who is baptized and clothed in the power of the Spirit. The Son who comes to take to himself flesh and blood. The Father did not take to himself a human nature. The Spirit did not take to himself a human nature. It is the Son of God who took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul to be our champion, to be our elected representative, elected by the Father before all eternity passed, that he might deliver us from sin through this new and greater exodus. You see, it is here that the, the light switch finally flips on. B.B. Warfield, in talking about the doctrine of the Trinity, describes it in that manner. What were once whispers and hints in the dark are now clearly revealed that the doctrine of the Trinity, it, it, it's like in it, it, walking into a dimly lit room. In the Old Testament, the doctrine of the Trinity is there, but it's not fully revealed. You keep stubbing your toe against it. In the middle of the night... As early as Genesis 1, why is it that this one God says, let us make man in our image? Why is it that we read in Psalm 33, 6, that it is by the word of Yahweh that the heavens were made and by the spirit of his mouth, all of their hosts. We see hints and vestiges, kind of like flashes of lightning that light up the room and show something that is present there from the beginning. And yet now here at the baptism, in the very mission of the Son, as he undergoes the work of public servant, he's acting in a way that reveals who God truly is as Father, Son, and Spirit. See, the the, the doctrine of the Trinity is not a fourth century invention. It is not a made-up innovation of the victors of history. Rather, the doctrine of the Trinity, as we confess, as we confess in the Apostles' Creed this morning, is the church grappling with God's own revelation as he has given to it to us infallibly in Scripture, that this one God subsists as Father, Son, and Spirit. What was once hidden is now revealed. This is the great unveiling. This is the great mystery hidden before all ages, as Paul writes in Ephesians. That God has revealed himself. That this should lead us to worship our God for who he is and all that he has done. That here is a God who not only saves sinners, but reveals to us who he is while he saves. This is why God has decided to save in the manner that he has. That he would reveal that, that it is the son of the father who comes not only to adopt us as sons, but to reveal that this is truly the eternally begotten son of God isn't that what Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer in John 17, where he says this, uh, he says this, that this is eternal life. They might know you, the one true and living God, and that they might know Jesus Christ whom you have sent. See, eternal life is not simply the elongation of days, the prolonging of life. As if uh, you you think of Bobo Baggins in Lord of the Rings where he describes the extension of days as like being a a thin slice of butter being scraped over toasted bread. Now Jesus says, I've not only come to give kind of uh, the, 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 the eternal life in terms of length of days, but I've come to give abundant life. And that abundant life is found in growing in what? The knowledge of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That as we hear the story of our salvation, it directs ourselves from and our attention from us to the one who saves us. that eternal life is found in knowing Father, Son, and Spirit, communion with the true and living God who has opened up the heavens, who has come down and reckoned with our sin, that we might be adopted and received into his family, that we might cry out in unison with open and loving hearts, our Father who art in heaven. May your name be sanctified. May His name be sanctified sanctified among His people here this morning. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word, and we ask that as we consider the work of Christ, uh, we would see our great God who has revealed Himself in the act of salvation and give worship uh, to the One who deserves all of our praise. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.